have been flying around here for the past couple of days, but rarely does it come by the window so closely. Um, hey, this is going to be a quick one. Welcome back to Anime on the Sea to Sky. I kind of wanted to get this going for more of like a double feature lining up and to get something out in the week before the entirety of all of my time is absorbed by the Stormgate public beta that just hit Steam. So... If you want to have the opportunity, I believe it's going on all the way until Sunday night, so get in and play it while you can, considering that this has the potential to bring RTS back into the mainstream. But outside of that, getting back into anime or animation or live action, and look, it's definitely a little bit of a mix. I've definitely been kind of going back and forth on what exactly I wanted to do this episode and what I wanted to call it, considering that most of the stories that I ended up covering in the previous episode have already come and gone. And not a lot else has been going through. We do have at least a new film that was given a movie teaser visual called Make a Girl, since this is done by the YouTuber Gensho Yasuda. And I don't know how long this is going to be, considering that the majority of their stuff is anywhere between a minute and a half to two and a half minutes long. So Fox Animation is the people that he's essentially going to work with. And so if I wouldn't call it a short film, but it's going to be, like, based on the length of all of these, probably less than an hour, so like 45 to 50 minutes, but I'm kind of curious to see how the rest of that's actually going to turn up, especially when you've got a creative team that is that small. But most of the stuff that I've been catching up with over the past weekend has been kind of seeing what films are going to be coming out, or at least ones that I'm actually excited for, for 2024, both animated and otherwise. Since I know that Dune 2 is probably just going to be my frontrunner for film of the year, even though, once again, it's going to be a midquel, which is also going to be difficult since uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, or Across the Spider-Verse, I'm... Yeah, yeah, Across the Spider-Verses too. I believe Miyazaki's already won the Golden Globe for Best Animated Feature with Bo The Boy and the Heron, but I, yeah, if that's the case, then I strongly believe that also, like, partly due to Legacy, it's also going to win the Oscar for Best Feature. February is going to be a lot of me catching up on films and the like that I wasn't able to watch in the previous year, so I'm kind of going to be filling in a lot of my time as that goes by, but Furiosa is going to be coming out on May 24th, Deadpool 3 is going to be coming out on July 26th, and Borderlands is going to be coming out on August 9th, all of which are North American release dates, just to be specific. But I was going through a couple of the backlogs for anime films, and the two that I completely forgot were happening, uh, Kimi no Iro is coming out, and that's the next major film production by Yamada Naoko, and considering after A Silent Voice and Heike Monogatari, it's still, and, and partially sound euphonium, but I'm definitely going to go through and continuously like follow her towards the rest of it. But then I have a much more complicated relationship with the other female creator that I'm going to be talking about later in the episode. But then I also completely forgot that apparently the Madoka Magica film is going to be coming out, which is such a weird... Madoka Magica was a phenomenon in 2013 when it came out which then spawned two compilation films and then a sequel film, which people started really being concerned about it being a sequel in general. Rebellion, I think is what it was called. And it took away a lot of the strife and the trial and just the resolve of the messages that happened inside of the original show, where the general consensus 
of the reactions between Madoka Magica and the movie Rebellion was that Madoka was something that did what it set out to do as well as surprise the audience in more ways than one on how something like the magical girl genre that has been a part of the anime industry for decades could still be used in a way to not only be horrific and dark but still be put in a more hopeful light regardless of the scenario that it has been put into depending on the sacrifice that one has to make and then it seemed like rebellion completely abandoned that choice and outside of spin-off shows that have come out since then, the, that is the last major piece of mainline Madoka Magica content that we've been given since 2013. It is kind of crazy to think about that way, but still, it's going to be a way for me to go back and revisit it, because Madoka Magica is definitely one of those shows where I really did think it was an amazing piece of storytelling when I watched it so early into my fandom, but it would also be just as interesting for me going back because there, were, had, there have been so many people who tried to essentially take off that success where it's kind of like, yeah, but what if we just made magical girls either darker or sexier or more mature? Or it's, it, it, I, None of them have even come close to the quality that that show has made in years and years and years. Some may say Precure, but I still need to get on that. So, and then Symphogear, if you do magical girl idol mecha boxing brawlers... It's, yeah, it's really difficult to go through, but just because it is that ridiculously over-the-top and that can't be, that's the reason why it's on my backlog. But still, outside of Madoka, which I'm definitely going to have the opportunity to watch again this year, is going... So yeah, I'm definitely excited to go through and have the opportunity to re-experience that franchise as a whole. Now, I'll get to the first film that I was able to go through and finally watch over the past week, and that was Indiana Jones' Dial of Destiny. And I say, I'm not going to say that it is animated. However, so much of that film is so blatantly painted over and edited and composed and just inherently glossed over by the amount of CGI that is in it. It's Every single film uses CGI nowadays. I understand that. But it's... Just when, like most recently, I ended up watching The Last Crusade uh, last year. And it is easily, like, one of the best adventure films of all time, for sure. Like, Indiana Jones and The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Sorry, the, a couple of things just faltered there. But Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I hadn't watched it when I was... in The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I when I first watched it, of course, it was... It was my first Indiana Jones. I was a teenager. There was not really a lot in terms of that that I'd seen up before then, and that's kind of why where it's just, okay, if you're going to be complaining about the CG in Dial of Destiny, why wouldn't you start complaining about that? Because I didn't focus on that. I just wanted to see a really fun adventure flick, and at the time, it was satisfactory to me. But then my dad was like, hey, did you like this? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I did. It's like, okay, let's go back in time. Let's go... And try this again with Rage of the Lost Ark. And I really loved it. I loved... <laughs> it, love is a strong word. I really did enjoy Temple of Doom for some parts. And then really enjoyed The Last Crusade. Years and years ago. Until I like rewatched it again. And it's just as good. But before I get into like talking about the ever-present CG in Dial of Destiny. It's just that, yes. A lot of the stuff that they were able to do in the Temple 
not Temple, in Crystal Skull, it was the first time that they would have the opportunity to use all of this new technology on an Indiana Jones product. And so they kind of went a little too ham with it and leading in towards how the rest of that went. It was still fine. I did like how they were proving that no, they are not going to pass on this Indiana Jones moniker to anybody else. But odds are when Harrison Ford passes away, like if he's, dude, he is 81 now. It is crazy. And when he inevitably does, you know that fucking Lucasfilm or whoever like produced these is going to just hand off the Indiana Jones moniker to some new upstart to make more money. It's like, please fucking don't. That hat belongs in a museum and certainly not on top of anybody else's head. But if there's anything that I will, like the stuff that I did like about Dial of Destiny, the entire first 25 minutes, it is, while I say there is a plethora of CG in this film, the one that just deserves to be recognized as a technical achievement and showing how far this technology has come is seeing de-aged Harrison Ford and rewinding that all the way back to the end of the Second World War. And it, you take a minute to be like, oh, that's just, wait, that's not Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford's like, what, he's 70? It's like, no, he's 81. It's like, wait, that's Ford at 81? It's just, no. This is having that opportunity to still have that de-age, but still let Harrison Ford act. Because he is the one with the same... Because it's kind of the same technology that they used in The Irishman for Robert De Niro. And so you still have the dots on Harrison Ford's face. And that is still him acting. Like, it is not a stunt double who is mimicking the movements. It is actually Harrison Ford still having the opportunity to do, to do the performance. But still seeing that tech for that much of an extended period of time, showing off what they were able to accomplish, especially with how many close-ups that you get. Like, his face is full front. It is not obscured by shadow. It is not something that you would be able to hide all of the indiscrepancies and all of the misdemeanors. But you see him so clearly, and it takes you a moment to realize, oh shit, they, like, shaved 30 years off of his face like it was nothing. And for that in particular, it was just such an incredible feat and a marvel at what the artists were able to accomplish with that technology. And so those first 25 minutes were great. The CG that happens in the rest of it when we actually get standard-aged Harrison Ford, who is in his 80s and he's grumpy and he's retiring and he's always angry, and he just wants to silently, like, fade away and then just go into a museum and just, like, leave all of it behind. All of the scenes of him then being forced back into action just makes it a lot more apparent about how the rest of the CG is by comparison. Because it's just... Then you get him chasing through an entire parade, and you know that there's a good chance that the horse is fake. It's a, it's a, CG, it's a digi-double riding the horse, and it's so many other like bits and pieces, like all the confetti, most of the people, most of the buildings, most of the light. Almost all of it is completely and utterly CG. And then you've just... They try to bring you back into the moment by like doing a close-up on Harrison Ford's face. Because, of course... He's 81. 5% of it is going to be his face and emoting. 50% of it's going to be a DG double. And the other 45% of it is going to be a stunt double. But it's just such a ridiculous amount of unnecessary glossed over polish to try and make you feel like you're still in the moment of this chase. When in reality, it is just, there is so much of it that is just tacked on that really does take you out of the moment where... 
in the past, you could still believe that that was him acting. But in this one, it's just kind of like, you feel like he's not in the majority of his shots for good reason. And at least spoilers for the rest of Dial of Destiny, it's just, we do get the standard indie fare. We go around the world. We go to Europe. We go to Egypt. We sail along the Mediterranean. But there are just so many of those places where some of it is climbing and some of it is, like, a lot of it is, you know, CG. And every time that's the case, you always get taken out of the moment so often. And then thinking that the main antagonist, who I have no idea how he recovered from that bonk, like, just imagine, like, he's, he is angry. Like, he is just angry and stern all of the time. And I would be too if I got fucking whacked by a metal watering pole like that was a hard down and the fact that like personally i thought he was i thought he died and some future version of himself came back and took his place but it's like nah dude he's totally fine in fact even though he is a nazi he's going to be one of the nazi scientists that they brought over to the u.s to help them land on the moon in 69 which is where this uh movie takes place but then to the point where it's like dude you got these astronauts as a mathematician on the moon, and you've been studying this dial for decades, and you still fucked it up at the end, where it's just, on top of it being like, I can do a better job than Hitler. It's like, okay, oh, back up. These are words that you want to hear nobody say, ever. But the fact that not only are you so confident in that statement, but you are going to fuck up the math that you have spent decades researching and then still end up in a thousand bc with archimedes like what the fuck man he was a competent villain but then just like it's all it's all hubris and oversight but that was mostly because a lot of the villains in indiana jones didn't take matters into their own hands except for the temple of doom and let's see how far that gone and then when he is so utterly confident in his own choices and his own success, but that he when he fucks it up, it's kind of like, man, I'm gonna laugh at you to the end of time. That 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 shit's crazy. But how they go like over and over, and where most of the chase scenes, which the chase scenes in any Indiana Jones film are normally the ones that are the most electrifying and the most engaging. But when so much of it now, like I said before, when I watched Crystal Skull, I didn't minded that much because I didn't discern it I was just having a good time but now seeing how much CG is being incorporated into every film nowadays seeing when it is done poorly especially when it is those chase scenes in particular where it's like that's a fake vehicle those are fake people those are fake streets that's a fake motorcycle that's a fake scuba diving tank like every everything revolving around those takes away from the moment and it, Legitimately, it takes you out of the moment, and you are not watching a fun, thrilling action-adventure movie. You are just watching a video game at that point. So it's just, it really does take away from most of what happens in the end, especially when they're, like, flying around in Syracuse, I believe, like, way, way, way in the past, which, to be fair, is also... I. I can kind of see it if the if Harrison Ford. I, I don't know how old Indiana Jones is. If I had to guess, indi like real indie is probably in his like fifties or sixties. But Harrison Ford's in his eighties, and so that's what I'm going to treat him as. And the fact that I understand he's going into shock, he's losing a lot of blood, but he would just stay and die of dysentery in a thousand BC with Archimedes 
rather than going home to people who actually care about him and just saying goodbye properly is just kind of like, man, that is some old man stink meter shit. Like, goddamn. It's like, nah, fuck everybody. I'm just going to go and die here in the past. And it's like, I get it. You're a historian, an architect. You, like, that is kind of a dream, but also, like, abandoning everybody else who cared about you just so you could live out a fantasy of dying in a historical period that you have spent years of your life researching i don't know man that's all sure but it's not going to make you any more sympathetic towards any of your choices which he's it's like oh my god he's still losing a lot of blood i'm i'm going to punch him and he blacks out the screen cuts to black and he's just back in his bed like we didn't see the, how they were able to fly themselves home we didn't see how he was able to like get to a hospital and like go through where it's kind of like imagining them going back in and going to like an italian medical facility just to like it's like okay look we've been through a long day just get this man some fucking morphine and get him on a bed and help him with his with his blood loss would have been a funny joke but it's like no he's just back in his bed and marion is there and they try to have this not sensual but just emotional moment of vulnerability feeling like okay we just got divorced and I just came back from the past, but it's like, ah, oh, I want you to kiss all my boo-boos. And, and he takes the hat from the clothes rack and he, the movie is over. And it's like this, man, I hope they never like make another Indiana. Like, it's like, it's like, man, I don't want them to make another Indiana Jones movie, but the fact that that's going to be the shot that he goes out on is just so disingenuous and wrong. I don't know. It was definitely like not one. I would have to go and rewatch Crystal Skull to figure out which is my least favorite between the two of them. At the very least, I would say Crystal Skull would be fun and funny enough with the back and forths to be at least more entertaining than this movie was because I was entertained in this movie for 25 minutes and that was it. So it was very difficult to kind of like go back and try to figure out what I was wanting to go, but yeah, if at the end of the day, this was your first introduction because the last Indiana Jones movie came out 15 years ago. At this point, just even though you've already started from the bottom, go back to where it all began. Go back to the beginning. Watch Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it is a phenomenal action flick. And if it's just kind of like he's still... I do love how he still hates Nazis fucking 40 years later, but still. There is a lot of good in Indiana Jones, especially with the practicality and all of the effects, not necessarily uh, CG effects, but just the effects work and the practicality that everything was put on display inside the original trilogy really holds up well 40 years later. Like, it is always going to be something that is going to be standing the test of time as one of the best action-adventure trilogies just ever. And so at the very least, I can just go back in time to a place where... Indiana Jones was to just go back in time to when Indiana Jones was the king of action adventure. But now let's actually get to what I probably wanted to talk about today because it, it, it's just, I don't know, most of, I'm going to be talking to Aaron about this as well, like so often, but yeah, sorry, Aaron, I didn't like Dial of Destiny. And then for, uh, and then unfortunately we're going to be getting to uh, someone who I've had a long-standing, not relationship with, but a relationship with their work. And that is Mario Kata. 
And so she has been a writer in the anime industry for 25 years now. She has written her own manga. She has been a part of productions for films, for anime, for OVAs, for documentaries, just everything across the board. And in terms of the anime that you have probably seen that Mario Kata has written for, I mean, of course, you're going to go back and she was the series... Com is that she was the series composer for Toradora. She did Anohana. She did the Pet Girl Sakura So. She did the first two seasons of Black Butler. She was a part of the script writing team for the original Fate Stay Night Dean adaptation. Lull in the Sea, Gosik. And more recently, she has been a part of stuff for Kiz Naiver, A Whisker Away, and then a couple of the other movies that I'm going to be talking about later. But in terms of my two favorite shows that she has been a part of for series composition, probably my two favorite works of hers would go towards Wandering Sun and Hisone Tomasutan, where Wandering Sun is a phenomenal adaptation of a trans boy and a trans girl trying to figure out what they want to become later in life and how it's going to be a lot more difficult especially whenever it because this is japan they are not that progressive and they are definitely going to nail you back into the board if you are a nail that just sticks out for no apparent reason and so it is a there aren't a lot of trans stories that play it straight. You will always see, like, either a flamboyantly gay or a overly feminine man or an overly boyish woman, but never so much that they would just outright state that they are of the opposite gender, that they would be trans. So it is a very rare piece where you could see it not only manga, but in anime in general, and Wandering Sun does a phenomenal job if that is a story that you feel like you are lacking and then we have this uh, workplace JSDF slice of life drama, I guess, with Hisone Tomasutan, which basically follows modern day dragon pilots where the dragons are disguised as different forms of military planes and vehicles. And it's kind of like, oh, yeah, no, this is it's really tough to describe it. Well, first of all, it's with characters in their 20s. So it if that's a story that you're looking for that doesn't revolve around high schoolers, I would definitely go for, towards the rest of it. But then I would say the only part it's lacking is when the drama actually gets in the way and they actually have to do some kind of action to make it sacrifice because the, re the relationships and the conflicts that happen between the main characters are a lot more interesting than anything that the overarching story has to give. But at the end of the day, they still do a phenomenal job. Although what I want to talk about today is mostly revolving around her screenplay for films. And so before the film that I'm talking about today that recently came out on Netflix, I mean, she ended up doing a, you know, children's storybook screenplay for Kaiketsu Zorori and one of the first OVAs for the cinnamon roll, Mascot and Plushie. She did a movie adaptation for one of her, one of... Oh yeah, no, like another one of my favorite works of her is like for a TV show, like probably one of the best Slice of Life's I watched, which is very akin to PA Works working series, which is uh, Hanasaka Uraha. And so she ended up doing a film, I can't remember if it takes place between the first and the second season or if it's afterwards, but it was a really good workplace rom-com that was able to go th 
through and have like a good piece where they work at this uh, traditional Japanese inn. And even though the high schoolers are the ones that get the most focus, there is a lot of other people inside of this that are still trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives and how essentially this inn is going to help them propel their careers. And then outside of that, we end up getting... It's, it's tough where it's, well, well, what's your favorite film of hers? And it's just, well, the last, I don't know, her best film to me probably goes back to The Anthem of the Heart, which is a very basic, same deal, it's a very basic rom-com, it's a very basic drama with high schoolers where it is almost every, like, high school anime that you could think, but at the very least, it's condensed down into 90 minutes. And so it's a short and sweet look into four different high schoolers and their different passions, their different love lives, their different, the dramas that they have going on at home, the conflicts that they have in school. And that's a lot better instead of dragging that out to either 12 or 24 episodes inside of a high school, like another standard high school show. What Mario Kata does in a lot of her works is that she is very down to earth with adolescence and the melodrama that happens in between a lot of that stuff. And melodrama, especially when it comes to teenage melodrama, is just... So ridiculous and trite. If you are not of that age, everything just seems like either a bore or an annoyance for sure. But she does do anime teenage melodrama well, considering that it's not over the top. It's not something that is viewed to be tantalized or overlooked, but it's just, it is supposed to be present and real, but awkward. <laughs> awkward engagements is definitely the majority of our adolescent lives. But with what Anthem of the Heart is able to do is that they're able to condense those moments down to a 90-minute film where it's like you know what the standard conflicts are going to be, but it executes well. And at the very least, because she was just the screenplay writer for that one, I would still recommend. She did get her first directorial debut for a film where she got to be more of like a showrunner. She did the direction, and the screenplay for Machia When the Promised Flower Blooms. And this was around the time when I was just getting into watching anime in theaters, since it was becoming a lot more common and prevalent. And I remember there being individual moments in that story. Like, this is Mario Kata to a T. She has incredibly strong individual moments and points of interest and conflict in all of her stories that far and beyond are the most memorable, and they are the ones that carry the films on their own. It's just getting to the, the, the writing work and the traveling, getting from point to point, is where she really does get messy and where it really does need to get tightened up a bit. Because those individual moments are phenomenal, and those are the ones that I always remember. But getting there is always a little bit of a struggle. She ended up then helping out for just a writing piece in Her Blue Sky, where I think where this is the only one that I haven't watched. And to be fair, considering that it is one about music and its relationship with the characters inside of that, that's probably going to be the one that has a good chance about me liking it, but it's the only one that I haven't watched. And unfortunately, I decided to watch A Whisker Away instead of Her Blue Sky, because Whisker Away, same deal. She only did the screenplay for this, and it's a middle schooler melodrama with a little bit of a fantasy element where the main girl turns into a cat to get closer to her crush and then antics ensue which really does get awkward at a lot of times and they do end up getting together in the end so that at the very least was something that is rarer 
by comparison, by anime standards, it's rare to get that conclusion. But for Mario Kata, a lot of it is very commonplace. Especially when we get to her most recent directorial piece, which is Maburoshi, or Alice and Teresa's Illusory Factory. And this film was weird, which is mo better than most that you could say about a lot of it. She got to go fucking off the wall with her ideas leading into this film. And it got me, as it does, inside of it, this is where, like, very more often than not, in Japanese, they end up having a four-part story structure rather than a three-part, where mostly in a lot of North American storytelling, you do have essentially one major climax followed by the following action into the conclusion of the story, where there is a four-part story where you have more than one conflict and more than one climax that happens in this movie. It was so weird to me being where I was only, like, a major point happens that acts as the twist and turns the world on its head, but it's only about an hour into the movie. And so the rest of it, I was kind of confused as to where the rest of it was going to go. So, put simply, I'm going to spoil the rest of Maburoshi for this episode. And if you still want to watch this movie, you should definitely go in blind. Because... The ideas and the setting that this film does is just so out there and so nonsensical that the more you know about it, the less you're going to enjoy it. So if you still have no idea what this movie is about, go in completely blind and then come back later. But for the rest of it, I'm just going to go through most of the major points in Mamoroshi because most of the stuff, like especially, this is the same deal that happened in back-to-back -back movies. I watched Dial of Destiny, and then I ended up watching this, and both of these are like 4 out of 10 movies for me. And that is incredibly difficult towards the rest of it. And it was so weird, because they were both so similar in the same vein, where for Dial of Destiny, I was in extremely invested and engaged for the first 25 minutes of the film, and I was curious where it was going to go. It was the same deal with Mabaroshi. It sets up this world... And you see the mysteries being built and why everybody's acting strange and where, like, where exactly could they take this? And then you see this girl and she is very feral, where it's, okay, she looks like she's of the same age, where she's like 14, 15, but, like, she's running around like a dog, she's just on all fours. It's so weird but it just adds to the mystique, and you're like, where the fuck is this going to go? It is so... Like, you are drawn into this weird town after an explosion happens, and consistently smoke dragons are repairing the sky, and you are just, okay, it's a fantasy, but where, where does the smoke come from? Where does it go? How are these people living in this day-to-day, -day, which seems like it is on loop? Because it's just, they tell you it is eternally winter. They have been in this world for an indeterminate amount of time. At the, at the start of the story, it is an indeterminate amount of time. Everybody's very docile, but the kids are acting like kids. The adults are still being, like, stagnant and wary. Some of them are skipping work, and it's just like, where, what the fuck is happening inside of this town? And 
it really engaged me, like, trying to figure out the mystery of what happened in this small town after, like, what most things do for Japan happened after a natural disaster go went through and completely threw the town into chaos. And then the rest of the story happens. So a lot of this because I was really because I knew where this was going to go they find this girl she's locked up they try to free her freeing her almost breaks the world in half almost but then they have to go back to the status quo which is also I if there's anything that I would see a lot of people complain about it is the main priest dude who was always looked down upon and was always like ostracized but in one moment in his one grand moment of tenure seemed like he had a grasp of the scenario seemed like he had the opportunity to lead people and know what was going on and use that eccentricity which still is something that happens in east asia today where it's just if this person is so confident and so passionate and so like in tune with what is going on or seems to be in tune with what is going on they can lead a lost group of people in a way that they would have never been able to lead them before. And so he becomes the de facto leader, almost like a cult, a cult leader inside of this town because he seems like he has the most knowledge about what is going on because he was a priest and he's like, okay, well, the god of the mountain that we have been pillaging from has been angered and now we must do nothing in order to keep things in the status quo and potentially go back to normal where it just gives him the opportunity to keep people in a stagnant enough period underneath control in order for him to actually live a life that he was never able to live on his own. He was the most believable and he had the most probable motivation to keep this world the way that it was. As the movie went on, I don't fucking know how everybody was able to follow this guy for over 20 years, because that is how long this town has been in stagnation, and I thought it would have been a lot less. I would have assumed this was something that happened, or or the town had been stagnant for anywhere between, like, say, six months to six years. That's still plausible enough towards the rest of it. But because of the timeline, in the fact that the daughter of the main two... Of the main two gets transported into this world and they have to find a way to get her home because the main two that explosion it got a lot of people out of the town but then it also split reality in two somehow and so now we have reality and then we have whatever illusory world that all of these characters exist in in perpetuity stuck in time but they are of the same people that they were when the explosion happened when they were kids. And you're telling me that none of the kids or none of the adults changed over the span of 20 years. And they followed this dickhead for 20 years not doing anything to change. And on top of the fact, every idea that they introduce... And that Mario Kata introduces throughout the course of this film just makes it more and more ridiculous. And it just gets me... I, I, I just don't know how to consistently like keep it under wraps. It's... Look, I love the... Same deal. I love the first 25 minutes. I love the intrigue. I love the mystery. And I understood why 
the guy was able to go through. In the same vein as what Mario Kana has shown her expertise with dealing with teenagers and melodrama and how they're able to go through and even in circumstances where the world is ending still have like an awkward confession scene like that's really good like it's it's still very human and very sad the problem is that they're in their 30s they're they should be mentally in their 30s and i understand that they're trying to take my suspension of disbelief and saying that oh yeah no but you see they're being told to still go to school and still keep that mentality as they were like i would believe that if this was a six to if this was a six month to six year period I could still I could still accept it if they were like 20 or 21 and they would still be like acting like they were in middle school. They are they have lived a life longer than their previous life and you're still telling me that they are supposed to act like teenagers and that is completely fucking off the wall for me. Like that that was one of the reasons that was one of the things that broke me. Something that was completely unnecessary about the film, we didn't have to have theoretical incest. I don't like the fact that those two words came out of my mouth in the, in the same conjecture, but that's essentially what jumpstarts the second conflict of this movie, is that the daughter of the real main two is jealous of the illusionary main two getting together, and it causes her to break and to leave them and to be angry. And it's just... Why? What, you you could have had like I hate the fact. No, I, I'm not even gonna say that. It just anything related to that. The fact that they had to be related in any capacity just is also something that should have just been thrown out the window. It's like you couldn't have done anything else. You couldn't have had it be like a friend of a family member to just have it at least one more removed. But it's like no, this is the daughter of the theoretical main couple that we have here and it's just all right that's so fucking ridiculous and like taking a step too far because that is one of the major conflicts that pushes the last part of the story which then is all of these different groups of people vying for control and trying to do something different where it's where it's like the, the so the main dude's mom I just want to be a good mother when the world ends because theoretically the world will end if the main if the girl leaves. But then we have one of them wanting her to stay, one of them wanting to keep the world going, one of them wanting the world to end, one of them just wanting to keep vying for control, and then one of them vying for to well, vying for them, of course, the main two to just get their daughter home. And the fact that all five of these things, it's like, they all state their objectives with 20 minutes left in this film. And these are objectives that are completely incongruent with everything else that is going on. Because they start bumping cars together, it's like, why the fuck are you... It's, it's like, why the fuck are you in conflict with each other? Like, we get it. You don't want this... You don't want your world to end. But this has, you already figured out that odds are you are of a different corporal reality version of yourself who's already alive and already living. And I know you don't want your world to end. I get that. But anybody who had been stuck in that for more than 20 years would totally be acceptable if you just want this to conclude. And so somehow at the end of the movie, both of them work out because the you know the main girl she gets to go home 
and the the rest of them, their world gets to stay together for an indeterminate amount of time. However, the eternal winter is over, and they actually get to live their lives for the first time in decades, which is a good conclusion to the movie. Why the feral girl with a... Why the emotionally stunted feral girl had to be dolled up and put in a wedding dress is also fucking beyond me. Totally. Why do you have to throw those tiny things to make me as uncomfortable as possible? Because what happens to her, Itsumi, I believe, you, you get introduced to her as this feral person running on four legs, not being able to speak. And then you figure out that she has been in that state for over a decade. Not the whole time. Because th she jumped onto this train because her real... So the real version of the main two, she j got angry and as a five-year-old does, jumps on a train... Like <laughs> A five-year-old just jumps on a train and then, gets, and then gets transported into a fantasy world. Which is like, oh, you know, totally standard. Which then the dad of so the fake dad of the main character fi like finds her figures this out tells the main dude that he it's like oh yeah no all we have to do is keep her locked up forever and then we can live in this world forever which then causes the dad to be so emotionally in distress that he is the first person to get spirited away from this town. But we don't get told that. We just get... I assumed that the main character's dad in this world was already dead. Like he like he died in the smoke accident that was caused by the natural disaster. And so he has been living without a father for this most of this entire time. When in reality, he was with his dad for like nearly 10 years of this frozen time. And he, he barely gets mentioned... And the fact that he left a diary that wasn't touched for another 10 years is fucking asinine to me. Where it's kind of like, would you not want to tell anybody that? Where it's like, I understand, you're you're fracturing, you're going to get spirited away, and you wrote all your stuff. He didn't tell anybody about the diary. And it sat in an attic for a decade. And I'm just like, this is forced tension and conflict and something that didn't need to happen. And even more tragic is that they is that this the reason why she's so feral is that they kept her locked up and stunted inside of this smoke factory for 10 years and they just abandoned her which i get it the only reason why he didn't tell his own son is that look if I told you, you would go out and save her, and then this world would be over. It's kind of like, man, we've been here for 10 fucking years, and you really don't want me... You really don't think I want to do anything else and leave? Are you out of your goddamn mind? It's just all... The overall world in the setup is still like a, a good and well-meaning mystery towards the rest. And the conclusion to the story, it's the same deal. Good opening part... Good individual pieces littered throughout, but the paths that Okada writes out to get from point A to B to C to D is still one of the messiest pieces about her writing, and it just makes it so much more difficult to keep everything under wraps and to keep things seriously. So it's just kind of like, I don't know. At the end of the day, 
please stop writing like futuristic or post-world or reality bending incest into your stories nobody wants any of that in fact that's th that's the majority of the stuff that's going to be like popping up towards the rest of it where it's kind of like oh yeah no yeah maburoshi it was another really weird one by okada weird by the fact that the daughter the future daughter gets jealous and it falls in love with her theoretical 16 slash 36 year old dad and it's just kind of like well when you put it like that uh, there's no defending it. It's And it's something that's weird. It's not anything that I could recommend. It's not anything that I could still say. The only reason why I continue to watch these is because I know that Okada is, still has the capacity to write a lot of good original stuff. But her track record and her batting percentage is just below 500. It just makes it a lot more difficult to try and go, to go and find something towards the rest of it. She's... And it's because of the success and her notoriety and still her skills as a writer that she will continue to be able to create works and to still be given the opportunity to write and direct for new productions is that you are st I'm go still going to continuously see her name pop up in the future. And it just makes it difficult because it's one of those things where it's like, I have to gamble because I know that she has the capacity to create well-written drama and emotionally gripping storytelling. But then there's also this where she just gets to become too creative and in order for it to have any lasting impression, irreparably mix in ideas at the end of the day that just harms her story and takes away more than what it ever could have given in the first place. Okay, I think that's enough. I definitely need to go through and cut back to it considering that Stormsgate's only going to be out for a week and I got to go through that. So, uh... Thanks for sticking around and cheers. Have a good one.